Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of From My Point of View. Jam-packed show today. We're going to start it off with some baseball news, a couple signings around the league and the Mets, another controversy with a front office personnel. Their GM fired Jared Porter because of explicit images he sent back in 2016. That controversy, George Springer, Michael Brantley signing with the Blue Jays, DJ LeMahieu back with the Yankees, and of course, NFL news, hirings around the league, head coaching, vacancies being filled left and right, and the review of the divisional round of the playoffs. The games, in my opinion, weren't as exciting as the wild card round, but they were still good, still memorable, and uh, certainly some headline news in a couple of these games. But to start off with baseball, the signings, DJ LeMahieu back with the Yankees, thank God. Uh, it, it was looking like there for a minute that the Yankees weren't going to be able to resign him and he was going to walk. That would have been devastating. But on top of re-signing LeMahieu, I think he got a six-year deal um, for $90 million, I want to say. Yeah, six years, $90 million for DJ LeMahieu. Uh, And we also, I say we as in the Yankees, but the Yankees also signed Corey Kluber, two-time Cy Young Award winner. Kluber signs for a one-year deal, um, I think for $8 million, $9 million, $10 million. Kluber signing for one year, $11 million to help bolster that rotation. Um, Not a long-term deal. And Kluber's kind of been hit or miss for a couple years now. Pretty much since he left Cleveland, uh, he hasn't been the same pitcher that he was when he was with Cleveland. However, signing him on a one-year deal like that, there were reports that he had uh, contracts and was negotiating longer, more guaranteed contracts with other teams, but elected to go with the one-year $11 million route With the Yankees, maybe in his case, I'm not sure how many competitors were looking to sign him long-term. The longer-term contracts were probably with teams that might not really be World Series contending teams right off the bat. So he elected to go with uh, a chance to win a World Series on this one-year deal. Kind of a prove-it contract. I'm sure after this, he's going to go and take uh, a two-, three-year deal with another team, but he's taking the one-year deal with the Yankees, so it helps bolster that rotation. Severino's coming back. Uh, Obviously, already have Garrett Cole. Tanaka's still a free agent. I don't know what he is. I saw a report that maybe he was looking to take more money and just head back to Japan to pitch there, so he might walk. Uh, So this was, even if he does walk, this was obviously a big signing for the Yankees to fill that hole just in case he does, Tanaka does leave. Uh, The other two big signings, this morning Michael Brantley signed a three-year deal with the Toronto Blue Jays. It wasn't disclosed how much the deal is worth, but three years for Brantley in Toronto, and then the big one happening late last night, George Springer agreeing to a six-year, $150 million deal with Toronto. So a lot of uh, big moves for Toronto in the past 12 hours, really. Their projected starting lineup going into next year. George Springer in center, Kavan Biggio at second, Bo Bichette at short, Brantley as the DH, Hernandez in right, Vlad Jr. at third, Gurriel in left, Telez at first, and Jansen or Kirk behind the plate. So that bottom of the lineup, Gurriel's there. That bottom two, ideally you'd like to round that out more. Um, The rotation for the Blue Jays, if they can go out and, like if they went out and signed Kluber, I think that would have really, really helped them. Um, But right now, as it stands, Brantley and Springer, getting them to come to Toronto, uh, that's, that's a big move. That's a big move for the Blue Jays, and considering they were so far ahead where a lot of people thought they were going to be last year, 
Uh, even, I mean, obviously the playoffs were extended and they did make the playoffs, but a lot of people didn't expect them to be there. So it seems like they're already ahead of schedule when it comes to their young core and their projection for the future. Uh, so signing these two guys, big moves for the Blue Jays. And the controversy now, the last bit of baseball news uh, with Jared Porter. The Mets GM, the new Mets GM, back-to-back years, the Mets had some problems. Last year, they signed Carlos Beltran to be their manager, hired him, and before he even manages the first game, he's fired because of the Houston Astros cheating scandal and the fact that he was on the team as a player. The Wilpons, in my opinion, butchered that. Uh, I don't think he should have been fired. I don't think it was that big of a deal. And I don't think people really would have crucified the Mets in the way that the Wilpons expected. But, you know, they have been known to butcher it (laughs) time and time and time again. Steve Cohen, the Mets' new owner, handled this very swiftly. Uh, This story broke from Jeff Payson around, uh, I don't know, like, Close to midnight, 11.30-ish, he just tweeted out this crazy, just like a bombshell of a tweet uh, about Jared Porter sending uh, nudes to this girl back in 2016 uh, that he like randomly met. 62 unanswered messages. Some of them texts, some of them regular pictures, some of them explicit pictures. But this guy was, I mean... Just cannot take a hint. What a moron. Like, what did you... Just an absolute moron. And Steve Cohen handled this swiftly. About as swift as you can. With the fact that this story broke at the time it did. Uh, I woke up at like 9am and Steve Cohen had already tweeted that Jared Porter was fired. And that they terminated his contract. Uh, He stated that when he became the Mets owner... Zero tolerance policy. That's how uh, he described how he was going to move forward. And I think the Wilpons probably would have fired this guy, but they would have done it in like a week or two. And people would have been like, how does this guy still have a job? How does this guy still have a job? And then by the time they fired him, like the damage would have already been done to them and the Mets. Cohen going about it really quickly, and making the only rational move an owner could make in this position. So, this guy, Jared Porter, he swindles Cleveland out of Francisco Lindor, and then is promptly fired. So, his legacy with the Mets will be that he got them Francisco Lindor and Carlos Carrasco, and then was fired for sending inappropriate pictures to a female reporter. (laughs) That's it. That's his legacy as the Mets GM. So, the Mets, as as good as they're in position, as good of an offseason as they've had so far, uh, they are now thrown into a GM search. Uh, I don't know if they'll hire from within. They'll go out and get someone. Who knows? But they are now... I wouldn't say in a in a panic state. Uh, pitchers and catchers do report in a month, uh, assuming that baseball starts when it normally does, which I'm pretty sure it will. So they report in about a month, pitchers and catchers. Uh, not, and then spring training probably starts like a month after that. So not like complete panic mode, I would say, um, but. You know, Steve Cohen's gonna have to try and make a little bit of a quick turnaround here with a little bit of little bit of haste. All right, in the NFL, got a bunch of head coach hirings, but first the news this morning: Philip Rivers officially announcing his retirement from football. A lot of people speculated this. It was kind of just like a last go around with the Colts because the Colts didn't really have; they were ready everywhere else, but they didn't have a. Um, a quarterback that they really could trust. Jacoby Brissett was fine, but he shouldn't really... He, he isn't a, a starting quarterback caliber kind of player. So, 
They went out and signed Phillip Rivers. This kind of, to a lot of people, seemed like a last hurrah for him. And it was classic, in my opinion, a classic Phil Rivers playoff game down late in the fourth quarter. Uh, unfortunately, couldn't make it happen against Buffalo. But he takes about a week to think about it and uh, hangs it up. So, Philip Rivers, salute to you. Big Ben, the only one left from that uh, supreme draft class of Eli, Philip Rivers, and Big Ben. Unfortunately, Phil Rivers is the only one who hasn't won a Super Bowl. Ben and Eli both have two each, of course. Uh, Eli retired last year, or this uh, this past offseason. Ben's still going strong, though. He He's still slinging it, you know, uh, so I don't know how many years Big Ben has left, but, uh, I, I don't think it'll be Big Ben's play that'll, that'll set him out, just like it was, it wasn't Phillip Rivers, Eli was the only one who was really, like, his play just was not good enough to be a starting quarterback in the NFL anymore, he, he just wasn't as, as sad as that is for me to say, um, it was apparent, it was glaringly, like, just obvious with, with an eye test that Eli was not, you know, an above-average quarterback in the NFL anymore. Uh, and that's when he decided to hang it up. Big Ben and Phillip Rivers, I, I don't think that'll be the case. Phillip Rivers, you could see this year, like, he was still playing at a level where he he could be, he could lead his team to the playoffs, and he could be an NFL starting quarterback, but he felt this was his last go-around, his last year, made it to the wild-card round, didn't make it out. And that's it for Phillip Rivers. So salute to Philip Rivers. Congratulations on retirement. Head coaching vacancies. Couple of question questionable ones here. Um first, the Chargers hire Rams defensive coordinator Brandon Staley as the head coach. Uh Staley again, Rams defensive coordinator. He was with Sean McVay, another young head coach, and he's going to Go to the other L.A. team with the Chargers. Has a nice team there uh, with Justin Herbert. Uh, I wanted Eric Bieniemy to go there. And as of right now, it doesn't look like Bieniemy is going to get a job anywhere with, which, I, I mean, I don't know if it's because he didn't want to take some of the jobs or teams aren't interested. I don't know why teams wouldn't be interested in him as their head coach. But I understand him going to the Chargers, it's the same division as the Chiefs. Obviously, that would be very hard for him to succeed. Uh, regardless of how well the Chargers do, the Chiefs will always be in your way. So that's a little tough, but anywhere else. I mean, the Texans, uh, the Eagles have a head coaching vacancy. I, I mean, I, I don't know what, what's the deal with, with Eric Bieniemy and the head coaching uh, vacancies and other of some other teams. I know he interviewed with the Texans. It's just very, very strange that he hasn't been hired yet, and a lot of these other people have. Um, so, like, Brandon Staley, young, hot new coach, like, you put him with a young team. I get that kind of makes sense. The Detroit Lions hire makes no sense. It just really doesn't. Um, Dan Campbell, I think he was the Saints assistant coach and uh, their tight ends coach or something like that. Like, I have no idea what qualifies him to be a head coach, I just, I really don't, he wasn't even a coordinator, like, it, it just really doesn't make any sense, and it, it, it blows my mind, really, I mean, this is a guy who has no, he doesn't even have coordinator experience, he, was, he wasn't an OC, he wasn't a DC, he was a tight ends coach, and an assistant coach to Sean Payton with the Saints, so I really have no idea what qualifies this guy to be a head coach. This is probably the most bizarre head coaching hire out of the like the four head coaching jobs that got filled uh, over this past week. Brandon Staley being hired, again, he was an excellent, that Rams defense was excellent. So he was a good defensive coordinator and he's a young guy. You hire him with a young team. They grow together. I get it. It's similar to the Sean McVay hire. Uh, I understand that one. And the two other ones that got hired, Urban Meyer got hired by Jacksonville, which I'm shocked that Urban Meyer accepted this job, especially with Khan, the uh, the Jaguars owner, coming out and saying that he wants a lot of control over the personnel and the roster 
of the Jacksonville Jaguars. I'm shocked that Urban Meyer took the job because uh, everywhere he's been, he's he's been the guy. He controls and oversees pretty much everything, no matter where he's been, Florida, Ohio State, uh, I think, what, UMass also he was at, like, or Bowling Green, where, what, what was, it was the small time school he was at before Florida, but regardless, he's been the guy wherever he's been, so I don't know how he's, how that's gonna mesh well, unless Khan has given up on that stance, and just said, okay, if you come over and I hire you, like, I will let you take the reins and you can do what you want. Um, but Urban Meyer with Trevor Lawrence, that's going to be very interesting. I don't know how long Urban Meyer lasts in the NFL. Um, obviously a wildly successful head coach in college, but we've seen college head coaches not pan out in the NFL several times. So as great as he is, right, you can look at arguably, he's he's like a top five college coach of all time, arguably. And if you look at other guys like Nick Saban, a guy who didn't pan out in the NFL and went back. He was in college, went to the NFL, didn't work out, went back to college. That's that's totally fine. Uh, but sometimes great coaches, great college coaches, it just doesn't work in the NFL. So that'll be interesting to see Urban Meyer with Trevor Lawrence in Jacksonville. Uh, I don't again. I don't know how long it lasts, but we'll we'll see. Everyone's definitely going to have a laser focus on that team going into next season. And Robert Sala. Probably the most praised head coach hiring uh, thus far across the NFL with these with these hirings. It seems everyone unanimously loves this hiring. Jets fans, uh, reporters for the Jets, ex-players for the 49ers, current players for the Jets. Like People are really praising the fact that the Jets were able to get Robert Sala to be their head coach. Um, Richard Sherman... Already came out and said if he's Deshaun Watson, he wants to try and find his way to New York because Richard Sherman respects Robert Sala and and loves him that much as a, a person and a coach that he would want Deshaun Watson to go to the Jets, regardless of past incompetencies by the by New York. I mean, they have been a dumpster fire of a franchise from the top down for uh, for quite some time. I mean, like management to play on the field. They just have not been good. So for Richard Sherman to come out and say that if he was Deshaun Watson, he would want to go and play in New York because of this dude, like that is that is some high praise. This guy has been universally loved as just like a man and uh, a coach. So Congratulations to the Jets. Again, he hasn't coached a single. He hasn't coached a single football game for New York, but it already looks like they have their guy just from the level of respect he commands from other players and other people. It looks like they got a guy who can go in there and change the culture for them. And that is really the most important thing. Uh, the Dolphins got it with Brian Flores. The Giants got it with Joe Judge. Uh, Robert Sal. Uh, those are just the guys off the top of my head, by the way. I know there's probably other coaches out there. Um, but it looks like Sal is going to be the guy to go in there and and just change the culture of the New York Jets. Which, quite honestly, that is what you're looking for in a head coach more so than actual coaching ability, at least right off the bat, right? Like Joe Judge for the Giants, this is a guy who was like the special teams coach for the Patriots. Uh, So, I mean, he didn't have a tremendous role, although the Patriots special teams was always very good. Uh, So he comes in here, a lot of people don't really know about much about him, but he came in and the Giants changed their culture first and foremost. They played hard from the first snap to the last. And they started off 0-5. Like, they did not start winning football games until the middle of the season. So, the culture changed. They weren't winning games, but they were playing hard from the first snap to the last. 
and then the wind start came uh and then the wind started to roll in so it's not always about the head coach comes in immediately makes a difference and then you just got to start winning games you want to see gradual improvement throughout the season the jets i don't know what their offseason is going to look like but assuming they add maybe one or two free agent signings and then they keep Sam Darnold in as their QB. You shouldn't expect many wins early on, but you want to see gradual improvement throughout the season. That is the most important part. It's what happened with the Giants. Again, they started off 0-5 and they ended 6-10. Not bad, right? Gradual improvement. Just a quick tidbit, going back to Michael Brantley's deal. Uh, apparently, it's not an official agreement in place. I did see that they were in agreement on a three-year deal from a verified Twitter account. I can't pull up her name, but I did see it. I promise you I wasn't making it up. It was on my timeline, and it was from a verified account. But according to Jeff Payson, it's uh, not an official agreement, but they are in talks, in deep talks, and... Uh, they are, they could get an agreement done. So that, that's that. Just wanted to clarify. Anyway, back to football. Um, yeah, Salah is looking like to, he's going to be the guy in New York. So hopefully Jets fans, they, they get their guy because they've been, again, just like an absolute mess for a while. All right, divisional games. Let's get to it. Packers, Rams. Packers roll 32-18. to 18. Uh, it, it was a tough game for the Rams. I mean, Aaron Donald was 50%, maybe. Uh, it, it, was, it was tough for them, uh, especially offensively. It, it, like, as good as that defense is, offensively, it just it wasn't working out. For the the Rams. Cooper Cup was out of the game. So clearly a huge blow for them offensively. And Jared Goff still dealing with that hand injury. Although he did throw the ball relatively well. 21-27 for 174 yards and a touchdown. Cam Akers also ran for 90 yards. He's going to be a very good running back. And the Rams kind of hid him away for a majority of the year. They gave snaps to Malcolm Brown. They gave snaps to Daryl Henderson. And Cam Akers didn't really start getting touches until later in the season. So he kind of had fresh legs going into these playoffs. And he's proven that he could be the first uh, the first option in a running game. So Cam Akers carving out a, a nice starting role for himself probably going into next year. As for the Packers, uh, Aaron Jones running for just a, a yard under 100. So 99 yards for Aaron Jones. Rodgers throwing for a hair under 300. And two touchdowns. Uh, Alan Lazard was actually the leading receiver with four catches for 96 yards and a touchdown. He had a a long touchdown, including I think it was maybe over 50 yards. Uh, 58-yard touchdown for Alan Lazard. So Packers roll. They go to the NFC Championship game. It will be the first NFC Championship game since the 2008 or 2007 NFC Championship game because the actually was it 2007 or 2008? I always forget the years. I think it was the 2007 season, 2008 playoffs. It was when the Giants won the Super Bowl. Uh, so the last game, the last NFC Championship game played at Lambeau Field was Brett Favre's last game as a Packer against the New York Giants, and we'll call it the 08 playoffs. I always forget uh, how the years work because it always leaks over into a new year. Regardless, that so it, it's been quite some time since Lambeau has seen an NFC Championship game. However, Matt LaFleur, second year as the Packers head coach, second year in the NFC Championship game. So credit to Matt LaFleur. A lot of people criticize that hiring, uh, but he has taken the Packers to a new level. The defense has improved uh, incredibly under Matt LaFleur, and... Aaron Jones, good running. They have a they have a good balance. The Packers. Aaron Jones is a good running back, and Aaron Rodgers slings the ball wherever he wants. Devontae Adams cannot be guarded, and they also have an All Pro 
defensive back with Jair Alexander anchoring that defense. The second game of Saturday night, kind of a stinker. Bills, Ravens, lot to talk about with the Ravens. But first, with Buffalo, big win for Josh Allen and the Bills. That Bills defense, huge credit to them, man. I mean, they have been playing out of their minds for a handful of weeks now, even leading up to the playoffs. That Bills defense has improved tremendously, and Josh Allen still kind of does whatever he wants out there, honestly. Like, he has had an incredible year. He ran, he threw for 206 yards and a touchdown. Um, Stephon Diggs, eight catches, 106 yards and a touchdown. Another 100-yard game for Stephon Diggs. I mean, he's been incredible as well. That tandem of Josh Allen and Stephon Diggs, it might, it, it's 100% a top five tandem in the NFL. Like, I'm not, I'm not sure how, how many more quarterback wide receiver duos I'd rather have uh Rodgers and Devontae Adams Tyreek Hill and Patrick Mahomes <laughs> Travis Kelsey and Patrick Mahomes and that might be it maybe Russell Wilson and DK Metcalf maybe but yeah I mean the, the, as far as like quarterback to receiver who like, that is your guy, that is your safety blanket, and if you need a completion, that's who you're going to, and there's no nothing anyone can do to stop it, I would probably put those three guys, those three tandems above, and then Josh Allen, Stephon Diggs. I'd put Rodgers and Adams one, just based on this year, Rodgers and Adams one, Mahomes and Kelsey two, Mahomes and Tyreek Hill three, and then Stephon Diggs and Josh Allen. Like, they have been incredible. And I really don't think anyone thought Stephon Diggs was going to be this good, let alone, obviously, Josh Allen was going to be this good. Diggs left Minnesota. They tra- Well, the Bills traded for him in Minnesota, and a lot of people thought he was going to take a step back because he benefited from having Adam Thielen across the field from him. Um, he had a career year. Easily the best year of his career. Easily. And that leap with from him and then, of course, Josh Allen having a historic leap from last year to this year certainly uh, took everyone from by surprise. So it was just a, a pleasure to watch Allen and Diggs play throughout this year because they have been borderline unstoppable. Uh, the one th- question I have with the Bills is their running game. I understand... If you have a deadly passing attack, there's not much people can do about it. Um, however, it, it does it does limit you the further you get into the playoffs. And Devin Singletary is your leading rusher with 25 yards. Like that can't that, in my opinion, is not a Super Bowl winning recipe. As good as Josh Allen and Diggs and the passing attack has been for Buffalo this entire year, I I really don't know how well you can succeed without that rushing attack. Um, Because, I mean, they, they... When was the last time someone rushed for 100 yards for them this season? Like, it's been... I I don't even... Maybe maybe middle of the year? Like, I have no idea. Uh, But it's certainly been a while... And it feels like they've abandoned it all together. So I don't know how... I feel like at some point that's going to bite them in the ass, not having that rushing attack. Um, And they're playing the Chiefs next week, so it's going to be extremely difficult for them, in my opinion. As for the Ravens, that was my only critique with Buffalo. Otherwise, I mean, they're a fantastic team. I just don't know how long they can go without a rushing attack. As for the Ravens, a com- pretty much the complete opposite offensively. Uh, they have a fantastic running game, and it's their passing attack that is wildly inconsistent. Lamar Jackson leaves this game. Uh, I think it was with a concussion. He got rocked. So he left the game and was out, and that kind of sealed it for the Bills. 
But before that, it was a 10-3 game. And Lamar Jackson throws an interception in the end zone. The Bills run it all the way back for a touchdown. That really sealed the game. I mean, that was that was it. Dagger in the heart. You can't be throwing end zone interceptions in the in the postseason. You're just not gonna win if you do that. So Lamar Jackson, costly turn over there. And I want to talk about Lamar. So obviously Lamar Jackson is wildly talented. He's a league MVP. There's no taking that away from him. However, the more and more I see him play, the more questions arise. Especially in the playoffs. He beat the Titans. The Ravens beat the Titans. He got his first playoff win. Obviously, that is a huge burden lifted from his shoulders. Uh, But aside from that, When the Ravens play with the lead, I think they are a top five team in football, no question. When they play with the lead. When they have to play catch-up, they are average. They are average when they have to play catch-up. And that game against the Titans, they had to play catch-up. That defense... Really, really stepped up. Like, they let up 10 points in the first quarter, 3 for the rest of the game. That defense deserves all the credit in the world. And Lamar did what he had to do to put the points on the board and win that football game. But they are not particularly good when they are forced to throw the football. And that is laying squarely on the shoulders of Lamar Jackson. His ineffectiveness of throwing the football. He has to make a leap. He has to. The Ravens were the same team last year as they were this year. If not slightly worse, in my opinion, offensively. Their defense was, I think, maybe a little bit better. But offensively, they might have even taken a step back. And it it lands on the shoulders of Lamar. Like, he has to make a bigger leap and a more concentrated effort to improve his throwing. And you can point at a a bunch of things when you watch him play. You can point at a bunch of things that he can change when throwing the football. He does, when he scrambles in the pocket, he, a lot of times, he'll throw off his front foot, like sidearm, drifting away, or off his back foot. He's If he's running to his left or to his right, he'll throw the ball sidearm, like into the dirt. These are things that can be fixed. I think it comes with maturity, and I think it comes with just uh, a higher IQ of football and understanding of what you have to do. And I think Lamar is very capable of making these adjustments. I don't think they're really physical at all. His throwing motion is fine. He has a decent enough arm to make deep throws. It's just about decision-making and that that split second of should I throw this ball, should I not, it needs to be improved because there are throws that he throws behind receivers. Um, We saw in the Titans game, he made a deep throw to a receiver that was open. I think it was Willie Sneed, but he was open. If Lamar leads him with the football to the sideline, that is a catch that can be completed for a huge game. And instead, the ball gets away from Lamar. He underthrows him severely, and it's an easy pick for Malcolm Butler. Like, those are mistakes that can be fixed. And I think a lot of the changes that can come for Lamar's throwing game is his footwork. His footwork needs to be better. He often, I mean, obviously he is, an, he is the most mobile quarterback in the entire NFL. He's fast as hell, and he can extend plays with his legs. And we saw it a couple times, actually, against uh, Buffalo and against Tennessee, where he scrambled out of the pocket, ran to his left, and then found a receiver down the sideline for a 10, 15-yard gain. Like, we have seen him 
make those throws. That is what I like to see from him. But sometimes when he is unable to get out of the pocket, he makes these questionable throws and these throws where his feet aren't set, he's he's throwing the ball at all kinds of arm angles. It just doesn't work. It might work in the regular season. And that is may very well be the reason why he got his MVP. That and the and the ability to run with the football. But when the playoffs come, it is a different game. It's like that across every sport. It slows down. Teams that make the playoffs that hinder that are hindered in one aspect of the game don't generally last long. So, with the Ravens, it's the inconsistency to throw the football. That hurts you more than the running game. We have seen teams with uh, a mediocre run game make it into the playoffs time and time again and make it deep into the playoffs. The Bills are that team this year. They don't really have a good running game, but their offense is good enough throwing the football, and Josh Allen has been good enough throwing the football that he can make up for the lack of running game. The Ravens are the opposite. They have a good running game, but they have an inconsistency when throwing the football on offense. So, Lamar is going to get his money. He's going to get an extension with the Ravens. He's going to get a lot of money, and he is their guy for the foreseeable future. 100%, no doubt about it. But he needs, I'm, I'm not saying he needs to make a Josh Allen type of leap, which I can't believe I'm saying that, but it's the truth. Go and look at Josh Allen's numbers. He went from like 53% completion to 58. He completed 70% of his passes this year. Like an astronomical leap, all while cutting down on interceptions and pushing up his TD numbers. Like just improvements across the board for Josh Allen. I personally never seen anything like it from a young quarterback. And I'm not saying Lamar Jackson has to make that kind of improvement to win football games. His completion percentage is just fine. He just needs to be like a guy where the Ravens can look at him and be like, we need you to throw the football and we need to throw it a lot and be comfortable with that. Like his best games as a pro are when he's throwing the ball 20, 25 times a game, max 30. Like I don't remember the last time this guy threw for 300 yards in a football game. And to double down on that, he didn't throw for 300 yards this year. Not once. His highest yardage in a game was week one at 275 yards. Like, his completion percentage is not bad. I want to be very clear at that. Last year it was 66%. This year it was 64%. It's not bad. Even his TD to interception ratio is not bad. 26 to 9 this year, throwing the football. This isn't even accounting for him rushing. So it's not the interceptions, it's not the completion percentage, but it's the fact that he currently, as it stands, is a guy who excels running the football and throwing 20 to 25 times a game. He isn't a guy that you can rely on currently to air it out and get the ball downfield by throwing it. It's just not happening. So if he can adjust and and just just bump it up 10 attempts a game, like make him throw 30, 35 times a game and throw for, try and get to that 300 mark. Like that is going to be a huge improvement for the Ravens offense. If he is going, if he can be reliable enough throwing the football to put up those kind of numbers. It will completely change the Ravens' offense. And this is something, like, I I want for Lamar. Like, I want him to succeed in that way. Because I'm saying it now. I I don't know how how many people are really... He is a league MVP. He's one year removed from winning the league MVP. That doesn't happen by accident, right? So he is completely talented enough to to pull that off. I'm saying it now... I'm sure in another year or so, like people are going to start questioning it as well if they're not already. Uh, so I want him to make that leap sooner rather than later to avoid these criticisms. Yes, he just won his first playoff game. That is a huge burden lifting from him. But soon, because with a league MVP comes that criticism. So if he keeps struggling throwing the football and being reliant on when he has to throw the football, 
people are going to start questioning him. And for his benefit, he should make that leap sooner rather than later. Chiefs-Browns. Of course, we have to talk about the quote-unquote worst rule in football, which is the touchback rule. I personally don't think it's a bad rule. Generally speaking, a lot of the rules, if not most of the rules in the NFL, are designed to help the offense and offensive players. So, from my understanding, most people hate this rule because it just it's a way that it screws over the offense and people like to see points put on the board. It takes what could have been a touchdown drive and turns it into a turnover for the other team. Uh, I like it. It's one of the crazy rules that benefits the defense. If you don't like that rule, why would you like the safety, right? That's just in my experience. Uh, They're both wacky rules. They both don't have... I mean, safeties happen way more often than a touchback rule. Like, this is a rule that barely happens. And in my opinion, if you fumble the football out of the back of the end zone, that is your fault. Like, there there should be some type of consequence for that happening on the offensive end of the ball. If you fumble it and it goes out of bounds in, like, the normal field of play... That's fine. Mark it at the spot of the ball. That is completely different. But the end zone shouldn't be treated the same as the rest of the field. It isn't when there's a safety, right? You don't just get the ball back from where you fumbled it when it, when it's a safety. That doesn't happen. So it's a rule that benefits the defense. It would be the same. Like if you fumbled the ball into the end zone and the defense recovered it, it's a touchback anyway. So when it goes out of bounds... In the end zone, there should be a penalty for that offensively. That's just how I'm thinking. Uh, I really don't think it's that big of a deal, considering the only thing you have to do to score a touchdown is have the very, very tip of the ball break the plane of the end zone. Like, it's they're not asking you to stick the whole ball across the line or anything like that. It's just the very tip of the plane has to be broken by the ball. Very, very simple. Players are taught not to reach for the pylon like that when they're that far away because that things, those kind of things happen. Now, on top of all of that madness with the touchback, Sorensen uh, should have been penalized for targeting with his head. Uh, he clearly leads with his helmet. He hits Higgins in the side of the helmet. Clearly a foul. Clearly a penalty that the refs just straight up missed because they were probably too concerned with the ball rolling out of the side of the end zone. But upon further replay, it was clearly a penalty on Sorensen. That should have been flagged, and the uh, fumble shouldn't have counted, and they should have gotten the ball at the two-yard line or the one-yard line because he would have been marked down from the spot of the foul, 15 yards, whatever, and... They would have had the ball on like the two. So that, in my opinion, the refs missing that call is way more of a game-breaking, game-altering decision than the ball going out of the side of the end zone. That That's a rule. That happens no matter what. But the fact that they missed just a blatant, like obvious, leading with the helmet hit, helmet-to-helmet contact hit from Sorensen is of much bigger concern than whether people whether the NFL should get rid of the touchback rule. Now, unfortunately for the Browns, if you're a Browns fan, you could just point to that and be like, that rule's dumb as hell because if they did score a touchdown there, they probably would have won the football game. Because Patrick Mahomes leads the game concussed. He doesn't return. Uh his game his decision for next week is up for uh he's questionable. And we're going to get to that in a minute. But for the rest of the game, Chad Henney comes in. And this is, uh, he throws an interception. Terrible interception. Back of the end zone. Easiest pick of whoever that was, life, uh, for the Browns. They pick it off. He kneels it. Browns get the ball back. Here is my problem with the Browns. In my opinion, I think Stefanski choked. I think he uh, fell short of the moment. 
mishandled his timeouts to a egregious degree. Like, really bad. First, his first timeout he burns in the fourth quarter is challenging a catch that Tyreek Hill clearly made. He bobbled it, yes, but, I mean, the ball at no point touches the ground. He pins it against his leg. That is a clear and obvious catch at the first replay. You have All you have to see is one replay. So, I don't know if Stefanski just got nervous and he didn't hear back from his uh, from up top in time whether they told him not to challenge. And he panicked and said, you know, screw it. I'm going to challenge it just in case and see what happens. But, I mean, after the first replay, it is very obvious that Tyreek Hill catches his football. So he burns a timeout on a bad challenge because either A, he panicked and threw the flag because he said, all right, not sure if this is going to count or not, but might as well throw it just to be safe. Or someone up top told him to challenge, which is a whole nother issue because if someone from up top came down in Stefanski's ear and said to, it's worth it to challenge the play, That that's a problem because it was clear to everyone that that was a catch from Hill. So he burns it on that one. Then the second timeout gets burned in which, in my opinion, is probably worse. So the Browns are trying to make their game-winning drive. Uh, the clock is ticking down. I think they have the two-minute warning on their side also. Um... But basically, they run a couple of plays that just don't do anything. Uh, they run a run play. They don't get anything. They make a pass. I think it was incomplete. And Stefanski, during this drive, during this final drive for the Browns, calls a timeout. In my head, he's doing that. I think, okay, like this is it. This is the drive. I think they have the two-minute warning on their side also. So they burn that timeout. You have to go for it on fourth down. Third and long comes down, and I'm I'm watching this game with my dad, and I'm telling him, okay, it's third and third and long. You don't need all the yardage here. You're gonna go for it on fourth down. Try and pick up half the yardage and then go for it. Uh the Browns, I think they pick up a couple yards or whatever it was, and then they punt the football, which is like I understand the logic. Some people are preaching like it's Chad Henney with the football, like you just picked them off. You have to trust your defense to get you the ball back. But they give them one timeout in the two-minute warning. The uh, the Chiefs just need to get two first downs, and the game is over. That is the worst way to lose a game, let alone a playoff game, is to just punt the ball and never get it back. It's brutal. It's like torture. And... I I just, I don't understand the logic because let's say you do go for it on that fourth down and you don't get it. The Chiefs have incredible, incredible field position anyway. So the only thing you basically don't have to, you can't allow is a touchdown. Keep them out of the end zone. And even if they kick a field goal, it's still an eight point game. I like your chances better then. But instead, you punt it, and you just you can't allow two first downs. Twenty yards, they got to gain twenty yards. And if they're the Chiefs, I don't care who the quarterback is. I don't care. Chad Henney is a reliable backup. He has been for years. I don't care if if he's just a backup. I don't care. You have him, who's been in the league for years. He's a competent quarterback. And on your offensive side of the ball for the Chiefs, you have two of the most unguardable guys in the entire NFL with Travis Kelsey and Tyreek Hill. And guess what happens? They get their two first downs. The first one is from Travis Kelsey. The second one is on a fourth and one or fourth and two, whatever it was. Tony Romo, the guy is betting his life that they're going to just try and draw him off sides and then call a timeout. Chad Henney's empty set shotgun. Tony Romo is betting his life. He's like, they're not going to snap it here, Jim. They're going to call a timeout and just try and get him off sides. Chad Henney snaps the football. Tony Romo has an orgasm live on TV. I can't believe it, Jim. They snapped the football. Andy Reid, he's unbelievable. I can't believe it. And of course, who did the second first down go to? Tyreek Hill. He runs a quick in and out to the sideline, catches the ball, drops to his butt, game's over. I don't care who the quarterback is. 
you have the two of the most unguardable guys at the respect, the probably the most unguardable at his position with Travis Kelsey, and one of the most unguardable at his position with Tyree Kill at wide receiver. Like, I don't care who the quarterback is. The Chiefs are going to be able to get 20 yards on those guys alone. You can't punt the ball in that situation. Go for it. Your season is on the line. Trust your offense. Trust Baker Mayfield. He was playing well that entire game. Like, he got screwed over out of the touchdown because Higgins, uh, Rashard Higgins, whatever his name is, reached for it and it went out. That Yeah, that screws you over big time. But this was a winnable game for the Browns. And it's got to hurt if you're a Cleveland fan. It's got to hurt. As for Mahomes and the Chiefs, uh, they were kind of setting the bar already for Mahomes coming back to play on Sunday. Andy Reid said he was fine in like the tests he had to run uh, after the game. In my opinion, even if Mahomes is not 100%, if he's like, if it's a 50 50 shot and the doctors say he can play but don't recommend it, like Mahomes is playing. There's just no way he misses this game. Uh, unless he just completely blows the con- the concussion protocol. Like, if he's just not even close to passing that, that's the only way that he won't play. But if it's like a 50-50 shot, he's he's definitely playing, 100%. And that's not all, that is to add on top of the fact that he had a, uh, he injured his ankle early in the game and was kind of limping around the entire time. And the play that it happened on was so bizarre. He has the ankle injury, and they run uh, an option play. Mahomes keeps it, he gets tackled, and then he's out for the game. Just a really weird call from Biennemi and Reed. I, I just don't understand why they would uh, force Mahomes to make a play like that when he's already banged up. But regardless, he'll probably play against the Packers next Sunday. The final game of the... Divisional round. Bucks, Saints, Brady versus Breeze, two of the goats. And Brady comes out top 30 to 20. Breeze, man, he uh he went out sad. It was it was tough to watch. I love Drew Breeze. I love the Saints. Um and they were up at one point 20 to 10. And they looked to be in control of this game. Tampa Bay comes back and scores 20 unanswered points to win 30 to 20. It's tough to beat a team three times in a season, let alone beat Tom Brady three times in a season. Uh, the two times the Saints and Bucks played, the Saints dominated them. Completely, utterly dominated them, embarrassed them straight up the second time they played. Uh, so th- Tom Brady's never lost three times to a team. And here we are now in the playoffs. That fact remains a fact. Tom Brady wins, goes to another championship game on his quest to have a home playoff game, a home Super Bowl game in Tampa. He has to go up to Lambeau and face Aaron Rodgers, but if there's anyone that can go in to a cold-weather environment like Lambeau Field, it's Tom Brady. You better believe that. So we are looking at two very good championship games uh one more thing with breeze he hasn't announced his retirement but this this is more or less it i mean everyone and their mother is saying that this was the last hurrah for drew breeze this is the last time you're ever going to see tom brady and drew breeze on a football field this is the last ever time drew breeze is going to see this be in the superdome and you kind of got that feeling Drew Brees hasn't mentioned anything about it, but you did get that feeling because as Drew Brees was walking out of Superdome, he kind of gave that look back at it and kind of taking it all in as he exited it for the first uh, for the last time. So, and if he's smart, which Drew Brees is, I mean, he is one of the smartest quarterbacks in the game, if not the smartest, as far as breaking down defenses and audibling and all that. Incredibly smart, but the arm is just not there anymore, man. He He just cannot... He struggles to throw it past 10 yards, and the accuracy is there. He's still very accurate, but it's just the arm strength and the velocity is just not there anymore. Um, So it it just, if he's smart, he hangs it up. 
because if he tries to go one more year, it's going to end sad. Even more even more sad than how it ended against the the Bucks with him throwing three picks. Uh yeah, it, it's hard to beat any team when you turn the ball over four times. Uh Breeze had three picks, Jared Cook had a fumble. Just not good for the Saints. Uh so sad way to see Drew Breeze go out, but he ranks second all-time in pretty much every quarterback statistical category. He was fourth in wins, second in yards, second in pass. Um, yeah, I mean, second pass TDs, I should say. So, yeah, he he is an all-time great, first ballot Hall of Famer, no question about it. So, Drew Brees, waiting on him to announce his retirement, joining Phillip Rivers. So, next week's games... We got really, really good games. Brady and Rodgers, that's probably the one I'm most excited for. And then you got Mahomes and Josh Allen with the Chiefs and Bills. That's a rematch from earlier this year where they played in Buffalo, and it was just uh, a gross game running the football. The Chiefs ran the football down the Bills' throats. However, the big rusher in that game was Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, and he has not been active for the Chiefs since week 15, I think. So, And he's not active now. He has an injury. So it's going to be Le'Veon Bell for Kansas City. And uh, luckily for them, they don't have to go to Buffalo. So they'll be in KC where there's probably still a chance of snow and high winds and cold weather. So uh, not going to be that much of a change if they had to play in Buffalo. But the Bucks go up to Green Bay to play Rodgers and the Packers in Lambeau. I'm shocked that they're not the, the primetime game. They're the 3 o'clock game on Sunday. Bills, Chiefs are at 640. Uh, I'd have that switched. I'm, I'm very shocked that they have... I mean, Kansas City is the defending Super Bowl champions. I understand that. Um, but I, it's Rodgers and Brady, man. Like, you got to put that game on Sunday night. I, I, don't, I don't understand how uh, it's not the other way around. But regardless, we're looking at two... Very competitive games in this championship round. Last thing to wrap up. The Deshaun Watson drama continues. And the more reports come out, the more it points to either the Jets or the Dolphins so far. Seem to be the two teams that a lot of people are speculating Deshaun Watson could want to be traded to. Uh, Again, I said earlier in the show, Richard Sherman uh, said that if he was Deshaun, he would want to go to New York because of Robert Sala and the culture change that he'll probably be bringing there. If you're the Dolphins, Deshaun Watson has said he would want to go to Miami if that was a team that was interested. I personally think the Dolphins are more capable of winning now if they added Deshaun than if the Jets added Deshaun. I think the Jets still have a lot of pieces to add if they want to compete at a high level, even with Deshaun Watson as their quarterback. The Dolphins have a phenomenal defense, uh, a decent enough offensive line, and enough weapons around offensively where Deshaun Watson can, can make a lot happen there. And I think they become uh, a com- an instant competitor if they weren't already to the Bills and the AFC and just like the AFC in general they become threats if they add Deshaun Watson with that defense for sure however I don't know how much they're willing to give up to make that happen and I don't know how much the Jets are willing to give up to make that happen uh if I'm the Dolphins you have the high ground there um you have you can give up more than the Jets and still be comfortable with your team if the if the Jets fork over you know, X amount of draft picks and even maybe players for Deshaun Watson, uh, they kind of mortgage their future there and they're not even a complete enough team to highly compete in the AFC, even with Deshaun. So it's a little bit give and take, but what is 100% absolutely clear is that Deshaun Watson will not be playing for the Texans this season. Uh, He's going to be in a different uniform by the time next season rolls around. And it's very early. The Super Bowl hasn't even happened yet. So we have all offseason for Deshaun to try and find a way to another team. But the fact that it is starting this early and it doesn't seem to be getting any better for Houston 
means that it is more or less guaranteed that he will not be playing in Houston anymore. And my second request is that J.J. Watt get the hell out of there too. Trade him while you're at it. If you're, take, if you're trading your franchise quarterback, please just gut the rest of the team and trade J.J. Watt. There's no need for him to suffer any longer. Please, please just send him to a competitor. I beg you. All right, that'll do it for this episode of From My Point of View. Thank you all for listening. Another long episode, but that's okay. Um, championship weekend on Sunday. Enjoy it. Uh, football is coming to a close in a few weeks, so it'll be bittersweet, but we're getting there. So, thank you all for listening to another episode of From My Point of View. I will talk to you all next Wednesday.